Hey listeners, thank you for joining me for episode 19 of Creme de la Crime podcast. This week we're heading to Maine, and according to worldpopulationreview.com, the state of Maine has 108 unsolved disappearances. It's important to keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Maine true crime. I decided to do something a little different with this episode. The cases are still going to be presented like normal, but because lately it seems I've had multiple conversations about the fact that men do disappear and the stigma surrounding how a six foot plus grown healthy man can just vanish into thin air. And I think people typically think that this happens to women and children but that's not true. So I wanted to dedicate this episode to two young men that disappeared. Both of these stories are kind of long, so I'm going to be sticking to the facts today. So let's get right into it. So the first story I want to share with you is about Jeremy Ted Alex. Jeremy Alex was born on April 8th, 1976 to parents Ted Alex and Paula Caswell. His parents divorced when he was young, and he grew up with his mom and his sister in Belfast, Maine. He spent most of his summers with his dad in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and also played Little League Baseball as a kid. Jeremy attended Belfast Area High School, and it was said that he was a troubled youth. He experimented with drugs, but he was never really in serious trouble. Family and friends described Jeremy as a free-spirited, mellow, caring gypsy soul that was close with his family. He loved skateboarding, gardening, and playing the guitar. After graduating high school, Jeremy worked with Greenpeace in California and decided to travel throughout the United States following the band The Grateful Dead throughout North America. During this period of time in Jeremy's life, He supported himself by selling grilled cheese sandwiches out of his van. He loved playing chess and had a passion for all outdoor causes. His stepmother, Susan, was even quoted calling him earthy in one of the interviews that she later gave. Before Jeremy disappeared, his parents thought everything was going well in his life. He was a self-employed landscape gardener living in Lincolnville, Maine, and had also been dating his girlfriend, Suzanne, for three years. They had met through a mutual friend in Belfast and had a lot in common. One of the things Suzanne loved about Jeremy was his straight-edge lifestyle, meaning Jeremy didn't drink or smoke. At the time Jeremy disappeared, he and Suzanne had rented a home on Harbor Road and were in the process of moving to Northport, Maine together. At some point, Jeremy had fallen off the wagon, and Suzanne covered for him by helping him hide it from his family. At the time he disappeared, he had just recently returned from a snowboarding trip to Sugarloaf a few days earlier, and it was said he had gone on a several-day binge of drug use and partying. On April 23, 2004, the day before he disappeared, 
Jeremy's parents drove up to Portsmouth, New Hampshire to visit him for dinner and celebrate his birthday. Jeremy had turned 28 a couple weeks prior, so this was a belated birthday celebration. They had no idea this would be the last time they ever saw their son. After he spent this time with his parents, a friend later came forward and stated she had seen Jeremy that same day and they had both used cocaine and heroin. This friend's name has never been released, but she stated she knew Jeremy's drug use was getting out of control. The next day, on Saturday, April 24, 2004, at around 11 a.m., Jeremy showed up at Suzanne's house. Keep in mind, they were still in the process of moving into their new house together, so they both still had their own places. He was supposed to come help move some items from Suzanne's place into their new home, but when Jeremy showed up, he was upset and claiming that Suzanne and one of her friends had been outside his window the night before taunting him in ski masks. He was also going on and on to her that people were after him and trying to hurt him. The last time she reportedly saw Jeremy was when he was packing up furniture at her house to take to their new home. Suzanne didn't contact Jeremy's family about his behavior at this time because she didn't want to be the one to reveal to them the extent of Jeremy's drug use. She later stated she knew Jeremy had been using hard drugs again leading up to his disappearance and believed his behavior was a result from that. No one really knows what happened between the time Jeremy left Suzanne's house and when he was seen next. Around midday that same day, a motorist driving along Pound Hill Road spotted Jeremy and said he was talking to two men in a red pickup truck. This detail was interesting to police, because this is very close to where Jeremy's abandoned car ended up being located the day after he disappeared. This location is also known as a prominent area where drug dealing takes place. Around 5.20 p.m. that evening, Jeremy ran out of the woods into the backyard of one of his former high school teachers named Cynthia on Bay Ridge Road. Cynthia and her husband James lived about a mile from the new house Jeremy and Suzanne were moving into in Northport. Cynthia and James saw Jeremy near their garden and went down to see if he was okay. They said Jeremy sank to his knees when he saw them and was clutching and waving around a wad of cash, frantically proclaiming that a group of bad guys were trying to hurt him. He even offered to pay them to get rid of these bad men, but begged them not to call the police. James tried to restrain Jeremy and calm him down while Cynthia went to call the police. He was able to keep him there for a little bit until Jeremy heard sirens and started to panic and took off running back into the woods. Even though the police had been contacted regarding this and Cynthia was positive it was Jeremy, there was no follow-up or family notification conducted until two days later on Monday. After running back into the woods, Jeremy was spotted by a woman driving along Route 1. She stated he had crossed over the road ahead of her, but after she passed him and looked in the rearview mirror, she saw him cross back over from where he had come from. This was the last time anyone would ever see Jeremy. The next morning, on Sunday, April 25, 2004, Jeremy's van was found in a small parking area at the Waldo County Humane Society located off Pound Hill Road in Northport. 
His cell phone and keys were still inside, but Jeremy was nowhere to be found. The Maine State Police saw the dad contact in his cell phone and called it. It was stated that Ted initially missed this call and had received a voicemail from the authorities. After calling them back later and speaking to police about what they had found, Ted immediately headed to Northport. It was said Suzanne also received a call about Jeremy, but it wasn't clear if Ted or the police had been the ones to notify her. She immediately headed to their new home to see if Jeremy was there. When she got there, the front door was open, but nothing seemed out of place in the home. This is when she decided to flush his drug stash down the toilet before heading to the station. It was reported that cocaine was Jeremy's drug of choice, but he would also use heroin on occasion as well. We know these details about Suzanne because she later admitted it to police and also told Jeremy's parents that he had fallen off the wagon. I do want to pause here and just note that Jeremy's family and police do not believe Suzanne had anything to do with Jeremy's disappearance. It was very clear she was genuinely only trying to prevent everyone from finding out about his drug use just in case he came back home. It was said Ted lived a little ways away, so he didn't arrive until Monday morning on April 26th. On this same day, a massive search of the woods around Pound Hill Road was carried out. The search included volunteers, law enforcement, dog units, and tracking systems that eliminated already searched areas. Upon this first initial search, nothing related to Jeremy was found. The Maine Warden Service and the Waldo County Sheriff's Office conducted two more searches for Jeremy in May and September of 2004, both also turning up with nothing. They also searched the area Jeremy had been seen crossing the road, which also turned up no new leads. Over the course of the investigation, police learned from Suzanne about Jeremy's substance abuse issues as well as the fact she had flushed his personal stash when he first went missing. She also revealed she had in fact flushed both cocaine and heroin, which led authorities to believe the drugs may have been the cause for Jeremy's hallucinations and delusions. Police and his father both tried to find out who Jeremy's drug connection was but none of Jeremy's friends would reveal this information. Jeremy's parents worked hard to keep his name in the media, as well as hanging and distributing posters on the street. They put up a $20,000 reward for any information that would lead to Jeremy's whereabouts. This, of course, resulted in Ted receiving a large amount of false tips. He received multiple tips stating Jeremy had been murdered, and these callers would even sometimes provide a location to where they claimed his body would be. Ted investigated every single tip and location he received, but nothing new was ever found. And can we just stop right here? Because I want to say you have to be a really shitty, heartless human being to call the parent of a missing person and waste their time, money, and energy with information you know is not true just for a reward. There are honestly really no words for these types of disgusting people in this world. Two years after Jeremy disappeared, the Maine State Police searched a pond in Northport after receiving a tip that Jeremy was murdered and dumped there. This ended up being another false lead and authorities ultimately found nothing related to Jeremy's case. 
A month after Jeremy disappeared, there was a couple building a house on Northport Beach in May of 2004. During this time, the couple had found Jeremy's driver's license and money that they assumed had washed up on the beach. It was normal for the couple to collect items that washed up and store them in their home. They had found these items within days of Jeremy disappearing. Four years later, the couple ended up showing these things that they had collected to a family friend, and this person recognized Jeremy as a missing person. The couple immediately contacted police and turned all the items over that they had found to the authorities. They had even kept the money that had washed up, but because so much time had passed, remember it's been four years, it was unrealistic at this point to conduct a search of the ocean. If Jeremy had somehow ended up in the ocean, his body would have been dragged out to sea and would no longer be recoverable. I think it's important to note that there are cliffs that connect this location to the woods where Jeremy was last seen, so it's not unrealistic to speculate he could have ended up in the ocean. Upon this new evidence coming to light, authorities conducted a search of this beach but still found nothing. Over the next few months after this discovery, Ted continued to carry out his own searches of the beach for any items that may wash up. But unfortunately, the items given from the couple were the last clues ever found in Jeremy's case. So now that we've gone through the details of Jeremy's disappearance, I want to discuss a few of the many theories that have come forward since the day he disappeared. The first theory is that Jeremy was murdered because of a drug deal gone wrong or a possible drug debt that he owed. People speculate that this could possibly be why Jeremy's items were found on the beach stating someone possibly dumped his body off of the cliff into the ocean. The second theory is that Jeremy had hallucinations that were so strong due to his drug use that he jumped or fell off the cliff into the water, ultimately drowning. The third is that Jeremy had an undiagnosed or dormant mental illness that was triggered by his drug use. I discussed this in episode 5 surrounding the disappearance of Michael Negrete. We know that mental illnesses in young men typically begin to come out in their late teens or early 20s. Is it possible that Jeremy suffered a mental break from his drug use? Another theory is that Jeremy died or was met with foul play in the woods and has remained undiscovered. The woods in this area are extensive, and some people speculate this is why he has never been found. And lastly, some think Jeremy may have gotten on a bus and left by choice to start over. His father, Ted, stated that from the beginning, he had a feeling that his son would not be found alive. The longer Jeremy remained missing, the more Ted felt this way because it was extremely out of character for Jeremy to not call for special occasions like Father's Day or Ted's birthday. These events came and went and still there was no sign or communication from Jeremy further confirming Ted's fears. Over the years, multiple sightings of Jeremy were reported, but ultimately didn't lead to any solid leads. A few months after he disappeared in October of 2004, a man fitting Jeremy's description was seen in the woods near Owl's Head in Maine, which is about 30 miles south of Belfast. Investigators attempted to speak to him when he was sitting in a local restaurant, but the man remained completely catatonic meaning unresponsive, basically. When they were finally able to identify this man, it was revealed that it was not Jeremy Alex, 
but in fact, another man missing named Jeremy who had gone off his medications and wandered into the woods. Ted wanted to create something positive out of Jeremy's disappearance. He went on to start the Jeremy Alex Fund with the Rotary Club in Portsmouth, which is an organization aimed at helping at-risk children and teens. The mission is to build awareness of the drug epidemic and also bring drug prevention into the schools in a fun and positive manner that will help students make better decisions. It teaches young people the strategy behind the game of chess, real-life decision-making, and its consequences. Since its creation over a decade ago, the club has supported numerous endeavors and projects, including student trips abroad and the donation of hundreds of chess sets to students and families at various local schools. Ted stated that the chess sets help create a dialogue for families that have used them and help bring them together for game nights. They have also provided grants to relevant causes like music scholarships for low-income students. The inspiration behind this organization is the fact that if Jeremy had made different decisions, he may not have disappeared. Ted was quoted saying, We were more interested in the aspect of chess that emphasized learning, consequences, looking ahead at your move, and how it's going to affect other people. These are things that Jeremy didn't think about, end quote. Even though the Jeremy Alex Fund has been positive for the community, Ted acknowledges that it doesn't heal the pain of Jeremy being missing. So I want to end with a statement that was made by Ted. Quote, It settled in at different stages. I had hope, of course. You have to have hope. But then it settled in that he was dead, and I just changed gears. Then it became for me, how do you deal with it? What do you do? End quote. He went on to state that he spent many nights on missing persons' websites and would often come across cases of children who have been missing since the 60s or 70s. Quote, You see it happen that when someone loses a child, they just lose their mind and it engulfs every aspect of their life. I didn't want to be that person. I felt that if this is going to affect me, I'm going to try to do something positive. End quote. At the very least, Ted just hopes one day their family can finally get answers about what happened. Quote, Someone out there knows something. I just hope they decide to do the right thing. Jeremy was a good kid, a smart kid. But when you surround yourself with people of that caliber, something is bound to happen. Some kids have issues, but they slowly get it together. I think Jeremy was on that road, but he just came up short. End quote. There is still a $20,000 reward being offered for any information that leads to finding Jeremy. Jeremy Alex was last seen running into the woods in Northport, Maine on April 24, 2004, when he was 28 years old. He had been experimenting with hard drugs and was claiming people were after him. Jeremy is a Caucasian male with brown hair and brown eyes. At the time of his disappearance, Jeremy was between 5'5 and 5'7 and weighed around 150 pounds. He was last seen wearing an olive green flannel Timberland sweatshirt, blue jeans or possibly brown corduroy pants, and sneakers. He was carrying a red backpack and was also known to smoke cigarettes he personally hand-rolled himself. His case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Jeremy Alex, 
please contact the Maine State Police at 207-624-7076. The second case I want to share with you is about a man by the name of Luger R. Belanger. And there are multiple pronunciations of his name, but I actually listened to an interview that his wife personally did, and this is how she pronounced his name, so I'm sticking with that. Luger Belanger was born on November 5th, 1950, to parents Edna May and Raymond Belanger. He grew up in Mechanic Falls, Maine, with eight other siblings. When he was in high school, the family moved to Washington, Maine, and this is where Luger met his future wife, Linda. After graduating high school, he got a job as a heavy equipment mechanic at Bridge Construction, which was also where his father worked at the time as well. I'm not sure what year he graduated, but it didn't take too long for him and Linda to decide to get married in 1971. They started a family almost right away, and by 1975, just four years after they got married, the couple already had three little girls. At this time, Luger was 25 and Linda was 20 years old. Linda was working as a waitress at a nearby restaurant at this time, and people described the Belangers as a loving family. Luger specifically was described as a kind person and a devoted father and husband. It was known that Luger loved to go hunting and often went by himself near the family home. November 25, 1975 was no different. It was only a couple days before Thanksgiving, and Luger, his brother John, and Linda went out early that morning to go bird and rabbit hunting together. During this time, It was difficult for Linda and Luger to feed their family of five, so they often hunted to put food on the table. After having no luck earlier in the morning, John and Linda decided to call it quits for the day, and Linda headed home to get ready for her waitressing shift that day. Deer season was coming to an end, and Luger desperately wanted to get one more deer to help feed the family throughout the winter. So he asked John and Linda to drop him off by himself so he could continue hunting. They dropped him off around 8.45 a.m. along Route 105 in Washington, Maine, which was only about half a mile from the family home. At this time, he was hunting with his 30-30 rifle and told Linda he would be back around noon to take her to work. The ground was covered with snow as Luger walked into the woods and began his hunt. This was the last time Linda would ever see her husband. Luger was a reliable person, husband, and father, so when an hour or two passed and he didn't come back to take her to work, Linda began to worry. She walked next door to tell her in-laws that he had not returned, and the family organized a search of their own that they conducted that same afternoon. They took out their own snowmobiles and combed through the area searching for him. Their search ultimately came up with nothing, and when they realized Luger was officially missing, they contacted the authorities. The Maine game wardens joined the search immediately, followed by the Maine State Police two days later. Linda said in a much later interview that she knew something was really wrong, stating she had become so upset that she ended up being hospitalized that night from the stress. 
The main game wardens tirelessly searched for Luger. They spent the entire night knocking on doors to see if anyone had seen anything, when they finally came to a man's house by the name of Clayton Crosby. He was a nearby neighbor and remembered watching Luger walk into the woods from his kitchen window earlier that day. He gave the wardens all the information he had personally witnessed and also offered to take them out to the area he had last seen him walking. Luger's family also helped in these searches, and some of his father's family even came from Quebec to help. The wardens ended up discovering tracks along the ridge where Luger had been, two 30-30 bullet cartridges, as well as the guts and scrotum left behind from a deer. He had apparently shot a large buck and had cleaned it in this location. It had been snowing the day of his disappearance and during the searches, And snow is actually a pretty good preserver of crime scenes if it remains cold enough. Because of this, the wardens were able to find quite a bit of information in the snow tracks and cleaning area that were left behind. The wardens traced the snow tracks, and it appeared that after he shot the deer, he had walked a little ways ahead to rest his gun against a tree. It's speculated he did this so he could drag the deer he killed to a nearby road called Creamer Lot Road. This location was about a quarter of a mile away, but what authorities found after following this trail was very concerning. There were marks that showed he had dragged the deer to the road, and there were also tire tracks found at the scene like someone had pulled over and stopped there. There were footprints in the snow where the vehicle had stopped, showing that two people had gotten out of the car, one on the driver's side and one on the passenger side. It was also obvious that one of these people had walked with a cane and apparently had an injured left foot that he had to drag sideways. There was evidence that the two had urinated in the snow and had also discarded of their cigarette butts and beer cans in this location. I want to pause here really quick because I know all of you are thinking what I'm thinking. These two could not have left more evidence at the scene. But please remember, this is 1975, so there was no DNA testing at this time, and authorities had no reason to collect samples and no way to test them like we do today. The feet print in the snow showed that the driver had walked to where Luger's gun had been resting against the tree and then walked back to put it in the vehicle. It's then speculated that the drivers helped him load the deer onto the top of this vehicle before Luger got into the back seat and they left. As the vehicle began to pull away, apparently the wind had blown a receipt out of the car that landed in the tracks in the snow. This receipt was from Sully's Garage in Union, which was about 13 miles away from the scene, and was dated for the same day Luger disappeared. This receipt was from a car garage, and authorities went to the garage to question the owner about the car that had been there the day before. They were not prepared for the crazy story that followed. The description the owner made regarding this vehicle for the receipt sale was a green 1965 Buick Special. He said there were two men with this vehicle, the first man being named Dave Svenningston, and the second being Danny Collins Jr., The shop owner said they showed up around 9 a.m., stating the radiator was leaking and demanding it be fixed immediately. It was obvious to him they had both been drinking, and he told them that they were already full and he wouldn't be able to work on it at that moment. 
The two left, but ended up showing back up at 2 p.m., even more drunk, with steam pouring from the vehicle. So remember, this would have been only one to two hours after Luger disappeared. They stated they had been hunting earlier in the day and also had a shotgun sitting in the seat between them. The mechanics fixed the vehicle the best they could on such short notice and then the two men left. After receiving all this information, the main wardens went to David's house to question him. During this quick visit, they saw a shotgun inside the home that had recently been cleaned, along with a hacksaw with an unknown residue on it. There was also a small room in the basement that had a padlock on it. When he was questioned about whether or not he had been hunting recently, it was clear that he lied when he said no, because authorities went on to find a refrigerator full of fresh deer meat. Although all this was seen during the first visit, the wardens had to leave to get a search warrant to search the rest of the home and the property. By the time they were able to get it and go back to David's house, he was in the middle of having a huge house party. All the evidence they had seen had been removed, as well as the padlock that had been on the basement door. The weirdest detail of all was the fact that now there was a newspaper article about Luger's disappearance taped to the freezer. Just a short time after his disappearance, the Buick Special the men had been driving that day was found abandoned on a residential road. The rear seats, floor mats, and part of the headliner were all missing. The back window of the car was also completely missing. When they opened the trunk, there was a strong smell of some form of cleaning agent and the spare tire and accessories were all missing. There also appeared to be deer hair in the trunk, a buckshot pellet, and a beard hair hanging from the pellet. The FBI lab ran tests on this hair, but they were all inconclusive. Just a reminder, it's 1975, so no real DNA testing existed. After the tough winter had finally ended, the warden service organized a massive search for Luger. This search lasted for an entire week and involved planes, divers, and cadaver dogs. Even with all these efforts, no trace of Luger was ever found. The first suspect, David, wasn't around long to be questioned, and his death is as bizarre as Luger's disappearance. I personally believe you get what you give, and near the end of July in 1976, only seven months after Luger's disappearance, David was killed when there was a massive explosion in his home. It was said this explosion was so powerful that it threw David through the front door and he landed about 10 to 13 feet from his house. Authorities strongly believe that David was responsible for creating this explosion, either with the intention of killing his wife, collecting insurance, or maybe even both. David had apparently bought a round-trip ticket to Orlando, and this showed that he hadn't planned to be in the house for the explosion. It was said that he had filled the bathtub with gasoline and then lit a candle wick with a fuse, but the gas refrigerator he owned is thought to have triggered the explosion prematurely. His wife was upstairs when the explosion occurred and was able to jump out of the second-story window to avoid major injuries. 
Even though the explosion threw David pretty far, he did initially survive, but he was severely burned and was transferred to the burn center in Texas. He ended up dying 11 days later before authorities could get to Texas to question him one last time. At that point, one of the only people that knew what really happened that day was now dead. So now we go to suspect number two, Danny Collins Jr. Danny is actually the guy that the Buick was registered to, but it was believed he was the passenger that day and David had been the driver. Almost two years after Luger disappeared, a friend of Danny's named Charles came forward and told authorities that Danny had confessed to him at a party they attended that they had murdered Luger. He told Charles that they had both been doing drugs and drinking and pretended to help Luger and give him a ride, but were actually intending on stealing this deer from him. Danny went on to say that after Luger got in the car, They told him they were keeping the deer as a shipping and handling fee, and he obviously became very upset, telling the men that he needed this deer to feed his family and to please let him out of the car. Danny then turned around, lowered the barrel of the shotgun over the seat, and pulled the trigger, killing Luger instantly. Charles died from a drug overdose shortly after he disclosed this to the police. At this point, the only person still alive that has any information is Danny, and he currently lives in Maine but refuses to speak to anyone about this case. So, basically, Luger was murdered over one dead deer. A human life, a husband, a father, a son, completely wiped out over deer meat. His wife, Linda, later did an interview stating her frustrations with the police. A retired FBI couple had come forward at one point and wanted to work on Luger's case, but they were threatened with arrest for, quote, hindering the investigation. Authorities have also made similar threats towards anyone that has wanted to work on or film about this case. In 1981, only six years after he disappeared, The family home had an extensive house fire take place. Linda was able to rebuild the home as time went on, but sadly she lost most of the pictures she had of Luger. Decades went by and no new evidence ever came forward. Finally, in April of 2020, a man doing some digging on the property he owned, which was located about half a mile from where Luger had been that day, dug up a pair of green Dickies work pants like Luger was known to be wearing the day he disappeared. The pants were buried with a rope, and this was something Linda said he would always carry with him when he was hunting. She asked authorities to look at the pants, and even though they were somewhat deteriorated from the amount of time they had been underground, she did say they looked like the size that Luger wore. These pants were sent off for further testing, but as far as we know, nothing has ever been released regarding the results. On June 20, 2001, Linda requested a Knox County probate court judge to declare Luger legally dead based on the diligent search of family, the Maine's warden service, and the Maine State Police over a period of 26 years. The request was granted, and Linda was at the point in her life where she was ready to get remarried. She had waited 24 years before remarrying. She stated that she still calls Luger's late parents mom and dad. 
Quote, When I got married the second time, they were at a special table. They were always my mom and dad. They had corsages, and they were right there. End quote. She was also quoted saying, It's been a very long time. We had three daughters. It was very hard. It was scary. I was young when I married and had children. I was 14 when I started going steady. I was 16 when I got married. If he had lived, we would still be married. End quote. Authorities believe Luger died that day, and they have classified his death as an unsolved homicide. Investigators have also continued to look into this case over the years. In 2015, a new four-person cold case unit was announced to devote all its time to unsolved homicides. Linda and her daughters were among the group of those that testified in the spring of 2015 at the legislature in favor of a bill to fund the cold case unit. The funding was approved and officially took effect on July 1, 2015. Linda stated that rumors about what may have happened come up from time to time, stating they often hurt her children more than bring them hope. Quote, At first, you know, they'd come around every month or so. Some divers would come around and ask if this wallet looked familiar. They would drag a lake like Washington Pond and the kids at school would say, I heard they found your dad's leg. It was horrible, end quote. At one point, her youngest daughter even refused to go to school because of it. As far as I could tell, all eight of Luger's siblings are still alive, but both of his parents passed away. His mother, Edna, almost 30 years after his disappearance, and his father, Raymond, on August 9, 2011. Linda stated, quote, All they ever wanted was to find out what happened and lay him to rest so that they could have some peace before they died. End quote. Although his parents passed with no answers, they did put up a headstone before they died at Sand Hill Cemetery in Somerville in honor of Luger. His sister Pauline described him as, quote, a very decent guy. He was level-headed, he went to work every day, did his job, and always came home to family. He wasn't wild and not one to get into mischief. It would have been so much easier if she could have buried her son, end quote. Pauline also stated that her mother was not afraid of dying, telling her, quote, I'm going to heaven to be with Luger, end quote. Linda and Pauline both maintained that if he had disappeared today, science would have been able to provide so many more answers. Quote, I think if they had the technology they have today, there would have been somebody arrested. They didn't have a blood type for Luger. With DNA technology, more could have been done. You read the book, you get to the last chapter, and it isn't there. One of my daughters is very emotional. The other two... They are Christians, and they believe that he's in a good place, and probably not knowing is better than knowing. They found peace with it to a point, end quote. His daughter, Angel, was only 23 months old when her father disappeared. Quote, she was just always with her dad, ate from his plate, rode on his shoulders, end quote. Angel said she prays that the case will be solved even after all this time. Quote, more than anything, I want to know where he is, what they did to him, where they put him, end quote. 
She also set up a Facebook page in Luger's name and said she tried to get Danny Collins Jr. to join it, but he refused the request. Quote, I want him to know that people know. I want him to know that it's not over. It's not water under the bridge. I did it so it would bring up a ghost in his mind. End quote. Luger Belanger was last seen walking into the woods near his home to hunt in Washington, Maine on November 25, 1975, when he was 25 years old. He is a Caucasian male with brown hair and brown eyes. At the time of his disappearance, he was 5'8 and weighed around 125 to 165 pounds. He was last seen wearing a red and black plaid hunting jacket, a blaze orange hat, green rubber hunting boots, and green cotton or navy blue Dickies pants. His case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Luger Belanger, please contact the Maine State Police at 207-624-7143. Before we end, my hopes with sharing these two stories of these two young men is that we can hopefully go after the stigma that it doesn't matter what your sex is, your size, your race, your gender, none of it matters. Anyone can go missing at any time from anywhere. And no matter who you are, it's important to always be on alert. And like I always say, keep your eyes and ears open. That is all I have for this week's episode, but if any of my listeners have a loved one that disappeared and you would like their story shared in a future episode of this show, please reach out via email, podcast 7 at gmail.com, and don't forget to head to Instagram and follow me at Pod. Like always, don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off.